0: I'm Kathleen Flynn, and this is Hungry for Words, the podcast in which I have lunch with a food writer, and you get to listen in. My guest today is Dara Goldstein, and you know, she's something of an icon in the food writing world. She's an award-winning author of five books and the founding editor of Gastronomica, the journal of food and culture. She's also a professor of Russian at Williams College and the editor-in-chief of Cured, a magazine on the art and science of fermentation. She has a fascinating background, and our conversation is going to cover a whole range of subjects, including her favorite and maybe the most surprising stories from behind the scenes of Gastronomica and the intersection between feminism, culture, and cooking, and we'll even throw in a little food porn. This episode of Hungry for Words is sponsored by Wolf, encouraging you to reclaim your kitchen, starting with one home-cooked family meal per week. Visit reclaimthekitchen.com for tips, techniques, and recipes from Wolf cooking tools. And by our media partner, foodista.com. Join a passionate community of food lovers at foodista.com. And by our partner, Book Larder, Seattle's community cookbook bookstore. Learn more at booklarder.com. So today I'm cooking from Dara's fifth book, Fire Plus Ice, Classic Nordic Cooking from 10 Speed Press. This is a beautiful book. It's really big. It's got a lot of recipes. I actually had a very hard time choosing, but I ended up settling on a recipe on page 85. It's an apple soup with juniper berries. It kind of reminded me of a recipe I came across when researching my great-grandmother's recipes from her native Sweden. And So going for it. To start it, I'm tossing some apples, celery, shallots, and ginger root into a pan with some oil over some low heat. Now I'm going to cover it, and this will cook for about 8 to 10 minutes uh, until it softens. Meanwhile, I'm wrapping up the spices. Juniper berries, cardamom, allspice, cinnamon, parsley, and thyme. I'm putting them into a piece of cheesecloth, and I'm tying it up with some twine. You know, if you don't have cheesecloth, you can use a coffee filter. It's a great hack. Okay, now it's been simmering for a while. I'm adding in chicken stock and cider into the pot with apples. Oh my gosh, this smells so good. And I'm going to drop in the bundle of spices and let it simmer. Okay, it's um, been about half an hour and it's done. And wow, what a fragrance. It smells like a combination of Christmas and apples and gin. And I I have to say three of my favorite things. So Great. I'm going to put it through a sieve and uh, I'm going to hope she likes it. I am with the lovely Dara Goldstein in my kitchen. Welcome to my kitchen.
1: I'm so happy to be here, Kathleen. <laughs> this is so fun. <laughs> it is. <laughs> to me, it's I- always nice to see. You. I've only seen you at ISCP conferences, so to be able to see you in your own environment is really great. And to see your pots and pans, that always to me tells me so much about person. I can even look at a
0: couple of the pans and think, "Oh, my friends got together and they bought me that pan," oh. and so it means more to me now. Like when you go to people's houses, or you when those people oh, look I, at their I books, I look at their books.
1: Yeah, I always do. Have you and got- usually you see those first because they're in the more public places, and you don't always get into people's kitchens unless you know them or unless you're impolite like me and <laughs> say, "Can I peek into your kitchen?" So it's not. That- is that the academic
0: side of you or are you just a naturally curious person? I, is-
1: hope, I would like to think I'm a naturally curious person. That doesn't really have to do with uh, so much the, I, I mean, part of it has to do with the intellectual life, but part of it is just wanting to know how people think and what their interests are. And I think it's also very revealing how they're arranged Um, whether they're alphabetical by author or whether they're by the color of the dust jacket or by size. That also tells me something about the person. How do you arrange your books? Well, (laughs) it's an interesting question. I have thousands of cookbooks. I have quite a wonderful collection. But I first organized them when my husband built some new bookcases and a new study for me because I was overflowing. And that was about 10 years ago. And now when I go, so I organize them by category. So the international ones would be organized by country or the community cookbooks have their own section. The food history has its own section. But the problem is that now I can't remember what my thinking was 10 years ago. So obviously I can find the international ones, but some more esoteric titles that could be in two different categories I can't find immediately any longer. This kind of begs a question,
0: how do, you, how do you end up with thousands of cookbooks? And how did you get into food writing?
1: I ended up with so many cookbooks because my mother was an avid cookbook collector. She loved to cook, and she loved to go to secondhand stores and buy cookbooks, and particularly children's cookbooks were somehow fun for her to read. So I have quite a number of those. And the food writing, I think, came because I had long been interested in food. And actually, when I entered graduate school, I wanted to do my dissertation on food and Russian literature. <laughs> I was told I wasn't a serious person. Really? And,
0: because you wanted to write about food?
1: Well, this was Stanford in 1974. It was a very, uh, shall I say, traditional place in the Slavic department. So I think part of my beginning to write about food in a serious way was to show those professors that, yes, it is actually a very wonderful and important undertaking, and you can learn a lot about culture and society through studying the food. Do you think that back
0: in... That part of that was because in the nineteen seventies sort of food writing was still it was still lurking in sort of the women's pages in a lot of newspapers or just coming out.
1: I think that uh I mean, it was difficult feeling as though I was a feminist, but still wanting to be in the kitchen and involved with domestic things. A lot of people, a lot of women looked askance at that too. And I think it's quite wonderful now that we have been liberated from that. And it really is okay to write about food. It's more than okay. Yeah. It's uh, something that many people want to take up now.
0: It's funny, too, because when you talk about feminism, when I was researching my second book, a lot of women said that the reason they did not learn how to cook, if they were in a certain age category, is because part of their mother's sort of feminine ideals involved not cooking they associated cooking with being
1: sort of oppressed uh, you know, yeah yeah and trapped
0: one of the women in my study was uh a- japanese and she said that she did not learn how to cook because she just saw her mother as sort of a slave in the kitchen to her father
1: it doesn't have to be that way
0: <laughs> no i yeah. think and i think we've shown now it doesn't have to be i yeah. mean you know so but it's it's interesting how it really wasn't that long ago and how time has changed the perspective.
1: I think my concern now is that too few people are in the kitchen. And I look at how stores have changed. And so much of the space is devoted to ready-mades. So foods that have already been prepared that you just have to heat up at home. So it is perhaps a step better than getting frozen foods like TV dinners or things like that, but it it still isn't involving cooking. And the thing that I try to communicate to my students is it doesn't really take that much longer to cook things from scratch. I mean, obviously, some things it does, but certain things that you have to cook in the microwave or, or heat up, you could actually do in steps incrementally, and it wouldn't take really very much longer.
0: Tell me about what you studied. I mean, because that's fascinating. I don't really know that much about your kind of academic background.
1: So I got my PhD in Russian modernist poetry. I worked on a poet named Nikolai Zabolotsky. I'm not sorry that I did that more traditional route uh, because it really, it added a lot of richness to my life. And At the same time that I was doing that, though, I couldn't stop thinking about food and being interested in it. So when I was studying for my qualifying exams, I was taking notes about what all the characters in Russian literature were eating. And part of that has to do with the fact that there's always been a lot of censorship in Russia, or historically there has been, and there is again today, unfortunately. But I think that all of the uh, eroticism was sublimated through food. So you have these extraordinary descriptions of feasting and uh, using food to define people's characters and relationships. So my first cookbook, which I actually published before my dissertation, was the Russian one, A Taste of Russia, which is still in print in a new 30th anniversary edition. And I had these two poles of my existence doing a more conventional scholarship in Russian literature, Russian art, and Russian culture, but still continuing to write about food. And it wasn't until probably the late 90s that I felt that I needed to bring these two poles of my existence together. And that's why I founded Gastronomica as an attempt to bring the sort of more academic side and the food world side together, but also to get people talking to each other because there was so much information that they could share and so much excitement, but the two worlds were pretty split. Tell me
0: about Gastronomica. I'm a big fan, but many people listening to the show may not be familiar with it.
1: So it started in 2001. The Journal of Food and Culture is is the tagline, and the idea was to give food studies academic creds to make it something that people didn't look askance at and say, well, this isn't serious because it's about food. But by the same token, I wanted to uh, sort of enhance the way people were writing about food and academia with the sensual side of food, the, the gustatory, the culinary as opposed to a more sort of social science approach and food studies and food systems. So there's beautiful artwork in it. There's poetry. There were uh, essays. There were ruminations. And so it was really a hybrid journal. And I edited it for 12 years. And then it really just had taken over my life. And I missed the kitchen because I'd been writing about food so much, but I hadn't written a cookbook in 20 years. And so when I gave it up three years ago, then the first thing I wanted to do was write another cookbook. This is it.
0: Wow. So, and the name of it is Fire and Ice. And what's behind the the title?
1: It's funny that you should ask about that. To me, I have spent a lot of time in, in the North in very cold and dark places. And everyone thinks about the North as a kind of forbidding place of, uh, winter when you don't see the sun, which is true if you're in the very far north, but bitterly cold and somehow hostile. But to me, there is that element, of course. But there's also a scintillation, it sparkles. You don't get a lot of, I mean, if you go out into the mountains, which you have close by, if you really look at the snow and the ice, it's so many different shades of lavenders and blues and It is really kind of brilliant, like a diamond. So that was the ice part, a kind of radiance. But when you have the ice, you're cold. And what do you want? You want fire, which also has a radiance. And the fire brings warmth. It also, of course, cooks food and is very important for smoking or for grilling. And it also kind of focuses people around it. There's a a Danish term called "hugge," which I'm probably mispronouncing. Danish Danish pronunciation defies me, but uh, it comes from the same Old Norse root as hug. And it doesn't have a precise English translation, but it's basically this idea of comfort combined with camaraderie. So it's not the kind of comfort where you would curl up in bed by yourself in a duvet and watch TV or something or whatever, makes you feel most comforted. It is really having candlelight or firelight, having good food, mulled wine or aquavit that's also warming, and having friends. So that's what the idea of comfort is. So that's the fire side or the fire aspect. And when I suggested this title, which to me encapsulated everything about the North. <laughs> when I suggested it to Ten Speed, they liked it, but they said, but we're not sure we can use it because of the S- Song of Ice and Fire oh. from Game of Thrones, because if people Google that, they might go to Game of Thrones. And I said, well, wouldn't that be a good thing? <laughs> <laughs> right. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, maybe, maybe some more people will discover the book. And so it was fine, They and they were fabulous publishers. Yeah, the book is beautiful. Thanks. It's a uh, Swedish photographer whose work I really admire. And one of the things that I wanted was a book that wasn't entirely food styled. So there are certainly, I think there are 40 some food shots so that you have a sense of many of the recipes, but mostly I wanted location shots. To noticed, evoke the north.
0: That's funny. I actually noticed that. So I, I saw that they're uh, beautiful landscape and, and also sort of very evocative of this ice and fire and it's kind of cool. But then there's this beautiful sunset in one image. And, you know, I, I thought that was interesting. There, That seems to me to be something that mis- is missing a lot of times in, in cookbooks because it they almost overdo the food porn.
1: Mm-hmm. So I wanted people to feel so they had a sense of the north.
0: Like as if they had been there. Yeah. Mm. You talked about in, early in the book about the first time you went to, to Sweden and you ended up living there for a while.
1: Uh, well, first it was Helsinki. Mm-hmm. So Finland came first and then Sweden mm. came and second. Did,
0: yeah. And how did you end up there?
1: So again, uh, Russian has really defined my life. Russia and Russian literature and, and language have really defined my life in many interesting ways and unexpected ones. When I was in college, I wanted to go to the Soviet Union to study the language because I felt like I needed to be there to really become fluent and it was the height of the Cold War, and there was only one program that allowed Americans to go, and only 12 people were accepted, and I was not one of them. <laughs> I was devastated, but I thought, I have to get to the North. So I decided to enroll independently in uh, at the University of Helsinki, which just is across the border from the then Soviet Union. And I thought I could probably get a tourist visa to go for a week or so. And it turned out that it was actually a very convenient uh, departure point because the Finns had special buses that would take them to Leningrad for a weekend of uh, drinking vodka (laughs) because it was so much cheaper in the Soviet Union and there are lots of taxes on alcohol in Scandinavia. So I arrived in Helsinki in June, right at midsummer. And the quality of the light was just unbelievable. I had never experienced anything like it at at midnight. And I woke up to this amazing breakfast of stewed rhubarb, which I had never tasted. Uh, I know it's more ubiquitous now, but in my childhood in Pittsburgh, people were not eating rhubarb. Extraordinary clotted cream, very heavy cream, beautiful, tiny, wild raspberries because it was June and uh, not raspberries, strawberries. It was strawberry season. And I thought, I'm in heaven. And then the year in Sweden was somewhat similar. It was 1980. I wanted to go to the Soviet Union to do graduate work on my dissertation. There was research I needed to do in archives And in order for my then boyfriend to come with me, we had to be married because this program would only support spouses. So we took the plunge and we got married and uh, were waiting to get the visas and got the visas. But then the U.S. pulled out of the Olympics in Moscow, 1980, because the Soviet Union had invaded Afghanistan the world turns. (laughs) And so they went down the list of people they'd accepted, and they crossed off Goldstein. And my husband, whose last name is Crawford, who is not a Slavicist, had a visa, but he had no reason to go. So once again, I'm like, where can I go? What can I do? So I went to the Slavic Institute of Stockholm University and we spent the first year of our wedded life in Stockholm and it was just magical.
0: And you talk about how you, you know you're young and you're a grad student and you don't have any money. Right. So it's a very different experience and say for somebody going for a couple of weeks and they're like, "Oh, we're going to really dine out and you know, experience the food that way." And how, how is that different in terms of your experience with that introduction to Swedish uh, food?
1: I have to tell you as background that um, the reason I could go to Stockholm was because I had a Fulbright Fellowship. So the Fulbright Commission said, we will allow you to transfer that to Stockholm. But in those years, 1980, the equivalent for the Soviet Union for the year was $5,000 for the stipend. And for Stockholm, it was 22000 And they didn't have 22000 left in their budget because it was the last minute. So they gave us 9,000. So we really were eating cans of mackerel and like poor little match girl, you know, looking at all the menus posted in the windows of the restaurants and not being able to afford them. But we treated ourselves every week to this wonderful, wonderful kanditari, which is a, a pastry shop where they had just fabulous cinnamon buns and almond wreaths and my favorite princess cake, which has a, it's a Genoise base and it has almond and cream. It's covered with a a layer of uh, rolled out marzipan and it is really beautiful. So my first taste of Sweden in a certain way was through its baked goods. And then my parents came over to visit and they took us to the restaurants I really needed
0: to, <laughs> to taste. <laughs> Thank goodness her yes, parents. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and so all these years later, you ended up writing this book about Scandinavian cuisine. And, and of course it's very timely. So the big question of course is why is Scandinavian cuisine so hot right now? I I recognize I'm doing a play on words, but. <laughs>
1: <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, I think it has to do, and I'm not sure. But for so many years, the Spanish kind of uh, avant-garde cooking, for lack of a, a better term, the, that kind of laboratory elaboration of food, the Ferran Adria style, was the most exciting food anywhere. And everyone was doing uh, things that were foaming and that had all kinds of transformations from liquid into gas or into gels and using chemicals to produce a lot of spectacular effects. And I think that in a certain way, the new Nordic is a reaction against that because it comes from nature. So much of it has to do with foraging, with going out and and picking berries or mushrooms or uh, lichen or whatever it is. So In New Nordic, it also becomes elaborated in the kitchen and things are done to transform it into something that is very 21st century. But the basis of it is quite traditional. And it also, I think, has this deep connection to nature that I think Americans are eager to experience because we feel so uh, cut off from the sources of our food and it's something that we're anxious about. So that's just my theory about it.
0: You know, I think the other thing, too, is that, I, so this is the time, of course, I tell you that my great-grandmother came from Sweden in 1896 when she was 17 years old. So my people are actually Swedish. Oh, so wonderful. And my, there are. Uh, were about a million Swedes, as I'm sure you know from all the research he did, who came to the United States because things were not really all that great in Sweden. Like, we think of Sweden now as a very progressive country, but it definitely was not in the late 1800s. And, you know, uh, as soon as a lot of those people could get out of there, they did. And so my great-grandmother, I found her records in Ellis Island. She was 17. She had one suitcase. And according to stories my mother uh, t- said, her mother said, um, that she didn't speak any English except that somebody gave her a tourist, like a little phrase book. And that's what she studied on the way over. And she ended up first going to Minnesota after she left Ellis Island, where a lot of them went, as we know. (laughs) Then she found her way to the upper peninsula of Michigan, where a lot of Swedish people are in Michigan and a lot of them in that area. And she first started out as a housemaid. And then she found out cooks got paid just a little bit more. And And so she started working as a cook. But... To me, it was really interesting because the um, she ended up working all these jobs and cooking for all these people so that she would save enough money to bring over two brothers and then the two brothers and she worked together and then they brought the rest of the family over. I think there have been so many people who have a Scandinavian background But it's not necessarily as celebrated as, say, being Italian-American or even being, you know, Irish-American. Like, you know, I'm part Irish. We get a whole day for that. Yeah.
1: (laughs) It's also, it's sort of the butt of the Lake Wobegon jokes, the lutefisk, that it is presented as, as these kind of bumpkins living in the Midwest. And I don't think that there has been the requisite celebration of Scandinavian foods and Scandinavian cultures. But it's happening now, which is really great.
0: Tell me about this book and how did you decide how did you decide to put it together? Cuz obviously Scandinavian cuisine is, you know, a big subject. And there are, each country has a lot of its own cuisine although they're so intermixed from their histories.
1: Yeah. The initial concept was actually different. I wanted to think about what I consider the northern dimension. So a very northern way of thinking and also a northern way of surviving. Because one thing all of these countries share is a very long coastline. So they're close to the sea, a harsh climate where not everything grows easily. And so how do people think and how do they survive? So what I wanted to do was start in the far east of Russia, and go along that northern swath of, of the far north in Russia into Finland Sweden Norway down to Denmark over to Faroe Islands and uh, Greenland and then over to Iceland and show continuities but also some differences but it is not really it was seen as not so marketable to have Russia in there <laughs> Russia being the outlier and yeah, I already, so, given your background. Yes. I, I snuck a little bit of Russia in. If you look at the foods from Eastern Finland, many of them are very similar. So there are some pies in here that are quite similar to what they make in Russia. So covert of you. Yes. No, I, I was pretty upfront about it. Upfront about it. But uh, <laughs> then I thought I'll just focus on the four core Scandinavian countries, but of course, the... Uh, Norwegian, Swedes, and Danes don't think of Finland as Scandinavia because it too is an outlier in terms of its language and its culture. Norway, Sweden, Denmark all were one country at one point. They share a lot of similarities, including language, and they were influenced by European traditions, particularly if you're talking about haute cuisine, then it would be by the French, but Finnish was influenced by russian cuisine because it was a grand duchy of russia so again it's it's different but to me because i spent so much time there i couldn't think of writing a book without it
0: which is interesting because in um, Russian cuisine, obviously, their whole cuisine was also so heavily French. influenced
1: by French. Yes, yeah. it all comes around when you start. <laughs> yeah, it all gets really <laughs> obsessed you go back far enough. It now. does. <laughs> but I would say that the recipes here, except for really one, a trout, a Norwegian trout recipe that uh, has beautiful roe served with it and kind of a beurre blanc. The recipes are more of the people rather than being Frenchified or fancified in any way.
0: Yeah, I I have to say one thing I liked about this book is I flipped through it and I thought, oh, I could make that, or I could make that, or I could make that. I mean, and sometimes books you go through and you think there's a very small subset, but I also liked that it was very highly seasonal too. There were a lot of things I'm like, well, it's November in Seattle, I won't be making that.
1: (laughs) 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 Well, that was interesting because it local, uh, seasonal. Those are buzzwords in the United States now. But in putting together the book, I realized how it's not buzzwords in Scandinavia. I mean, it really goes back to having to survive through the long winter months. So you have winter and cold not so much in Denmark, because it's much further south or in the south of Sweden. But if we're talking about the northern reaches, the snow doesn't really melt until May, which of course was true in Williamstown, Massachusetts last year as well. It just didn't go away, didn't go away. But then suddenly, you have this wonderful smell of the earth being liberated. And you get the first greens of Spring, you get fiddleheads, you get nettles, and they're so full of vitamins and this wonderfully fresh smell and spring mushrooms that pop up out of the earth. And then you get the sequence of berries, starting with the, the little strawberries and moving into raspberries and then bursting forth in August with the blueberries and lingonberries and cloudberries and Arctic brambles, and then the mushrooms in the late summer, early fall are spectacular. But uh, you also cultivate vegetables in the summertime, but you have a very short growing season, even though it's intense because the sun is shining the whole time. So the vegetables have extraordinary flavor. But then suddenly you have to put them up for the winter. So the way I really came to understand the foods of the north is this intense freshness and earthiness and then the transformation through salting or curing or smoking or drying and then the flavors get intensified they become something else particularly the fermented foods so you have a a very broad spectrum of flavors
0: and it Kind of hits the sweet spot too with all the DIY folks who are really, I mean, for me, getting back into canning has been an extraordinary experience because it makes me really think, oh, I have to kind of get to these blueberries this weekend because they're not going to be around right.
1: in a couple of weeks. And-, and then you feel so burdened and you know, <laughs> all this steam and it's hot in our kitchen and it, it becomes overwhelming because it's always, for me, coinciding with the beginning of the academic year. <laughs> and, but I want to get the produce in. Yeah. But it's good.
0: So I made uh, a dish from the book. So I made this apple soup with juniper. And uh, and so let's taste it okay. and see what you think. I, you know, I'm always kind of nervous to cook for people.
1: Oh, it's lovely. Oh, thanks. It's spicy. It's really good. So I
0: think the spice might actually come from the fact that I used this chicken stock that I realized after I put it in may have had some jalapeno. In
1: it. Yes, because I don't remember my rendition being as spicy, but I actually love it spicy. Mm. I'm not tasting jalapeno in it. No, so, it's um, kind of subtle, I thought. Yeah, but it is... Um, I love this soup because no one has any idea what's in it. Mm -hmm. You get a tartness from the apples. I'm really curious what kind of apples you used.
0: So I followed my instructions and Mm -hmm. I got Granny Smith apples, Uh these really nice Washington State organic Mm -hmm. ones. I also think I may have put a little more ginger in it than maybe it might have called Uh for because the one-inch piece was – I wasn't really sure what that meant, so I thought, eh, how can you really go wrong with yeah, but um,
1: that's really good for people who are coming down with colds, mm-hmm. <laughs> as I feel I am at the moment. So the spiciness is probably more than you would taste in Norway, but I actually love it spicy. Mm. And I think that I like it when people make my recipes and as long as they turn out, but have their <laughs> own character, I think that's really great.
0: Mm. I really like this. It reminded me of making applesauce, mm-hmm. mm. but a really um, like a kind of pungent aromatic because the the ginger just completely took over the whole house. And Mike came up and said, "What is that?" And I said, "Oh, I'm making the soup." And and I said, "Apple soup." And he, which he was kind of like apple soup. That's kind of random. And I said, "No, no, no." And he, and that was his take on it. Was not it? it reminded him of just even in, while it was cooking of applesauce. And then yeah. the whole process of you puree it and then you put mm-hmm. it through the yeah. – I did it through a sip. Yeah, it's delicious. And I have been wondering what to do with these juniper berries that I
1: had oh. left over
0: from making sour in last year.
1: <laughs> oh, good. <laughs> really- well, there's another recipe in here. I think it's for a Corellian stew that also uses juniper berries.
0: Nice. So. You know – One of the things I always wonder, because I always have sort of my couple favorite recipes or the recipes that were the hardest ones to put together, tell me about sort of your favorite ones, the most difficult ones, just maybe a little bit about some of the background of some of the recipes.
1: This is actually one of my favorite recipes. Oh, good. (laughs) So I was thrilled that you made it. I like this one because it's so warming in the fall. Uh, We think a lot, at least in New England, I don't know about in Seattle, but it's always butternut soup or pumpkin soup, which is beautiful, but it gets a little tiring for every Thanksgiving season to have that same soup. So I think this is a nice counterpoint to that. And as you say, there's a wonderful aroma as you're cooking. And so to me, it, it kind of captures fall. Another favorite recipe is for ice cellar salmon. I really love gravlax, and gravlax is fairly ubiquitous now. It is one of the most classic Scandinavian recipes. You find it in most of the countries, and sometimes they use um, a sweeter or a saltier mix of the salt and sugar to cure the salmon, But in Finland, a friend of mine gave me a recipe for this ice cellar salmon, which instead of rubbing the salmon fillets with the mixture of sugar and salt, and then layering it with dill and leaving it to cure for 48 hours or so, you just put the salmon in a brine that has salt and some sugar and lots and lots of dill and peppercorns and I may have thrown some juniper berries and I can't remember what I put in the recipe. But it sits for uh, two days in the refrigerator and the texture is so silken. And it's not labor intensive because you don't have to scrape off the residual salt and it's really beautiful. So that's another favorite. I felt as though I could have done a whole book on baking. I love to bake. And the baked goods are so buttery and a lot of almond and a lot of a lot of almond paste and a lot of cardamom. And uh, there is a Finnish bread called pulla, which is basically like a, a challah or a brioche. So it has a lot of butter and eggs. It's enriched, but it's cardamom flavored. And it's really beautiful. And some saffron buns. And those are golden and gorgeous.
0: That's kind of brings up a good point which is the rest some of the recipes had things and you you talk about it early on about why they ended up having things like cardamom like these some of these exotic spices that you certainly don't expect to find in Scandinavian cuisine but in certainly different locales.
1: That was a revelation to me because if you think about the soil and the cold you obviously can't grow things like cardamom, these tropical plants, ginger, cloves, cinnamon, and they're omnipresent in the baked goods. And certainly at Christmas time, when they make the mulled wine, you put all of these spices in. And it turns out that we think about the Vikings, and we make lots of jokes about the Vikings now because they're also very hip, you know, on that TV show (laughs) and very buff (laughs) I wonder how those original Vikings looked. But um, we think about them going west to the British Isles and then on to what became Canada, but they also went south and east. So they went down to the Black Sea, to Constantinople, and then also to the Caspian, and there they connected with the trade routes from the Far East, from China. So they brought all of these spices to Scandinavia early on. And of course, only affluent people could afford them, but they eventually became part of the uh, traditional foods. I would say more in the late 19th century, when industrialization meant that they could get wheat flour that wasn't too expensive to be imported. It was still very fine flour, but they could finally bring it in. All of the breads had really been made with rye or with spelt or with barley or with oats. And so once this baking tradition really took hold in the late 19th century, then all of the spices came to be used.
0: And so rye, of course, would be something we would have derived, say, from, you know, sort of Russian.
1: You yes. Know.
0: Is it because they can grow it in that kind of climate?
1: Yeah. Um, but rye actually came much later than the, the barley, which was the primary grain and then the oats and then some spelt. So I can't remember exactly when rye came in from Russia, but, um, you find it now coming from the East to Finland, then to Sweden, and then on to, uh, Denmark where you, for the smørrebrød, bread, the open faced sandwiches are always on a kind of rye mix or a pumpernickel. Norway doesn't, use as much rye bread. There's tend to be more oat cakes or uh, I have some barley rolls in here. They also eat a lot of porridge. And one of my favorite recipes in the book, because I'm a porridge lover and not everyone is, I think the world is divided into those <laughs> who like it and those who don't. And I happen to love it. And it, it takes whole rye berries. So just the whole grain And you put it, you mix it with water, a tiny bit of salt and some dried cranberries and put it in a very slow oven overnight, uh, like 11 o'clock. And when you wake up in the morning, you have this beautiful porridge that is sweet from the cranberries. You don't have to add any extra sugar. And I love it. It gets hard very fast, you know, once it's taken out of the oven. So then uh, after you've had your bowl full, you can take the stuff that has solidified and slice it like you would cold polenta and fry it in butter. And oh, that sounds Yeah, good. it's really good. <laughs> so
0: why the fascination with Russia and Russian?
1: Um, my mother's parents were Russian Jews. And actually, my grandfather died before I was born, so I never knew him. But I was very close to my grandmother. And life in the old country was really, really bad. You were talking about your grandmother coming over and how poor she was. And uh, for Jews in Russia in the late 19th century, it was a very difficult life. And so she would never tell me anything about it, but I was curious. And there was a like a tumbler that was made of wood that had it was cut out and painted with a scene of the Kremlin, and I always thought it had come from the 19th century. It was the one artifact from Russia that she had. And then years later, I think I was already in my 20s, I rediscovered it been stuck away somewhere and stamped on the bottom it said, made in the USSR. <laughs> so obviously someone had gone and gotten it. But in my memory, there was, in, in my child memory there was something magical about those kremlin onion domes and so when i started college i thought i'll study russian because i'd studied french and german and spanish and i wanted a different language group and that seemed to be the one and it really overtook me it wasn't that i intended to study it in fact i applied to graduate school in comparative literature but uh was not accepted in the comp Lit program but was invited to uh study in the slavic department and i thought okay i'll do that why not so every step of the way it was serendipitous
0: it's kind of like the universe guiding you to yes exactly you, yeah
1: exactly. i believe in that i do too
0: yeah I also realized there's another question I wanted to ask you, which was about Gastronomica. So in all the time that you did Gastronomica, so what are the stories that you really remember uh, that working on that either surprised you, uh, you know, just are the ones that you go, oh, I'm so glad I have a home for this story because it probably wouldn't have been published anywhere else.
1: Uh, one that I remember was about war-torn Bosnia, a mother trying to feed her two children, no food, the city being shelled, just absolute desperation, but so lyrically and so beautifully written. And I found that very, very moving. Another one that was very interesting There were so many, I mean, 12 years worth times four, and each issue (laughs) 128 pages. There was a really wonderful essay about the joys of sitting and eating alone. I think it was called Table for One. And there's so much talk. And I, I mean, I say the same thing, that part of what makes a meal is the company and the sharing and the sort of communion over the meal. But this was a really well articulated argument for what's wonderful about eating alone and you can concentrate on the food and you don't have this chatter. But it, it, again, it was very lyrically written. Uh, that was another favorite one. There was one early on about, even before we start talking about food porn, about uh, some of the Food Network shows And that was an academic article, and it was very heavily footnoted and quoting Bourdieu. I don't remember who, but it was a very smart one. And the reason I remember that is because we wanted to illustrate it with some clips or some stills from the different shows that were being mentioned. And we couldn't get permission from any of them. They refused to allow us to use stills. And well, so, why? What? Because they well, thought
0: you were they, you were publishing an exposé, and your uh, an
1: exposé that how many people are reading <laughs> I mean, in your in the academic journal? I don't know. I never really understood why we tried and tried. So then, what our brilliant designer did was just uh, because I always wanted the articles to be appealing to read, so they had to be illustrated. She made these elaborate sort of. Baroque frames that were gilded, and inside the frame there were uh, there was a blank canvas. So you had decoration on the page, but there were no actual images. <laughs> I love it. It's like this creative yeah. way of getting around it, exactly. And it, and it really highlighted part of what was wrong with the whole enterprise.
0: Fascinating. How interesting. Great. Well, thank you so much. It's been so great talking in my kitchen.
1: Oh, it's really been fun for me. Thank you. Thanks.
0: My guest today has been food writing icon, Dara Goldstein. You can check out her books, including Fire Plus Ice, Classic Nordic Cuisine, at DaraGoldstein.com. You can find the recipe for her apple and juniper soup, plus some other tidbits, at HungryForWords.show. This episode of Hungry for Words is sponsored by Wolf Cooking Tools and their Reclaim the Kitchen initiative. Visit ReclaimTheKitchen.com to learn more. Today's show is produced by Abby Circatella. Music is by Audionautics.com. We'd love to hear your feedback, so leave us a review on iTunes, or you can even send us an email at info at KathleenFlynn.com. That's it for our show. See you in two weeks with a new episode of Hungry for Words. Until then, eat well and be kind. I'm Kathleen Flynn.